this is a famous passage uh, that really expresses to us the heart uh, of God and the things that he cares for. And this is a, a timely, timely in a, a time, in a season in our lives uh, where people are hurting and they are discouraged and they are oppressed and there's uh, a, a collective cry and a longing coming uh, from people, not just individually, but from, from uh, uh, collective groups all over the area. Uh, I, think of, I think of Parkland, the school in Florida, where uh, uh, a bunch of children lost their lives at the hands of one person. I think of, uh, before that, the over 150 gymnasts coming forward to give testimony about uh, a corrupt individual uh, in, their, in their line of work. Uh, I think in terms of uh, positive terms, in more celebratory terms, uh, like the month of February, which is known as, uh, which celebrates Black History Month, a season in the year uh, to celebrate unique contributions that have been made that are often and sometimes glossed over by a majority culture. Uh, and this is seen very vividly in the movie Black Panther, which was awesome. <clears throat> we see it in, in things like people who have nowhere to go, people who feel lost and isolated, uh, people who don't have advocates. And we see it on a more personal, local level in things like the fire and the mud, where people that we know, people that we are connected with have lost everything. Uh, and whether it was, you know, within this year or last year, whether we're speaking about 2018 or 1952 or the year 817, this question never seems to change. There is this collective longing and cry from the human heart that things are not well. There's pain, there's hurt, there's oppression, there is a deep longing that there might be a better way to live than this. And it was no different 2,000 years ago as this man Jesus steps in on the scene to speak into that collective longing and cry. And he has an opportunity to set the pace for the rest of his ministry, and he chooses to do so by selecting a single passage of Scripture. Now, just to kind of set this, this stage, and I'll just, I'll just read it. I'll just start reading. Verse 16 says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll. We'll stop right there. This is an incredible scene. Because Jesus has been growing up for the past 30 years. Now he's an adult male. The synagogue was where uh, Hebrew people would worship. This is where the Hebrews, the Is uh, uh, Israelites would worship. Uh, kind of similar to maybe a church, but uh, a little different. Uh, but they would have teachings. Uh, usually there would be a couple passages of scripture that would be opened up. Uh, a rabbi might give a few words on it. But then at the second part of that, that time together in that gathering, they would read from one of the prophets. And they would invite someone, usually a, a, an adult male in the audience uh, who is of age, to come and give some words on that passage of scripture, teach on it. So they would invite people in the, in the congregation to come preach. Uh, and what we're reading here is this happening. I think the most salient point, and if this could be one of my most important points today, 
that I don't want to be uh, lost on any of us here, is that it was customary in synagogues actually for the congregation to stand. I don't know if you knew that during the sermon. And for the preacher to sit, kick back in his seat and preach for the entire duration of the sermon. We're going to see this. Jesus is actually doing this. And so we're we're in a series called Apprenticing Jesus where we're all about doing things the way that Jesus did it. Just want to throw that out there. Just kidding. But he stands up. He's reading from the scroll, and he's, he's soon going to sit down to preach a sermon. But the first thing he does is he highlights a text. Of all the texts in the Old Testament, he highlights this one. I'm going to read it. But what it's going to share with us about the way things are and God's heart for that. So we're going to see what God is doing about it. We're going to see uh, not just what God is doing about it, but how God is going to do it. What God is doing or what he cares about, how he's going to do it, and third, why he's doing the things that he's doing. Or in another way of saying, uh, speaking, we're going to see God's mission, God's method, and God's mirth, to put it in, in a particular manner of speaking. So here's God's mission. What, is, what does God care about? Quoting from Isaiah 61, I'll continue reading verse 18 and 19. This is what Jesus reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Out of all the passages he could have selected, he selects a particular passage from Isaiah chapter 61 about God's, the year of God's favor coming upon the least likely the least loved, the least helped. The mission of God, we could say at this point, is salvation and liberty and redemption and freedom. It's all of those things for the individual person. And that's probably why uh, some of us are in this room right now. We were personally saved by a personal God who reached out and grabbed us right where we were. That's why I'm here. Personal, individual salvation. God caught me right where I was. I was going in a particular direction. He stopped me by the grace of God. He opened my eyes to see him in a saving, redeeming way, and I changed directions, and I followed him. This is the story of some of you in this room. Individual transformation of the heart. That's part of what God is saying here when he speaks of recovery of sight to the blind, spiritual and literal. But it's not just individual salvation. If we were to read the whole Bible, we'd also have to say something about social salvation. The fact that the gospel is not just good news for my spirit and my heart, it's good news for real life right in front of me. That a gospel that uh, only affects my spirit but does not affect my relationships is a toothless gospel. That a good news that only makes me feel good inside but does not change the way that things are is fangless. It has bark but no bite. And that's not what we see in the Bible. We see a gospel that changes individual people's hearts but it also conforms societies, changes communities, creates churches of people. Changes things wherever it goes. 
That's why we see the word justice so often in the Bible. And I bring this up because, first of all, Jesus brings it up, and he brings it up because God brings it up in Isaiah 61, and this is all over the Bible, that he cares about individual spiritual self, but he also cares about the broader, systematic, institutional things, things beyond just, just us, beyond just the, a personal transformation of the soul. He cares about the world and everything that it touches. And I bring this up because it's common for evangelicals, of which we are, and I shouldn't say all evangelicals, I should say uh, Western evangelicals, to really focus on individual, personal side of spirituality. And this is due uh, probably less to what the Bible says and more to cultural values which we inherit without even thinking about it. We live in an individualistic society and culture, and so we tend to think of things in those terms. How does this affect me? Uh, For example, our faith might be private. Uh, We follow God because of how it affects, you know, how it helps us, but we never let it bleed out beyond that. Uh, Or when we think of things like salvation, well, salvation is, you know, the change of my heart, and that's where it stops. And we don't often think, or perhaps we don't often think, of the gospel, transformation moving beyond just our hearts, to our relationships, to our communities, to the way that those things are put together, and the way that they affect the individuals in them. I want to give you an example of this for the years and years that I've preached at Reality. I've often preached upon the transformation of the heart. That is God's, seems to be God's first method. That's what Jesus came to do, is to change people's hearts. Our hearts don't want to do the things of God, so he comes and he changes our hearts. Uh, I've preached that many times, and I'll continue to do that. That is part of the gospel. And usually when I do, I get a lot of head nods and amens. There have also been times where I've spoken out about how the gospel moves beyond our personal experience into society to change the way that things are. I'm talking about systems. I'm talking about institutions. I'm talking about justice talking about bigger, broader things. And I've noticed, you know, enough at this point to bring something up that when I speak about social issues, I often get a little bit of feedback. And that feedback is usually in the form of a single sentence. Chris, you're getting political. And I want to say at the front end that you're right, but not for reasons that you think you're right. And because there is no separation in the Bible between the spiritual and the physical, there doesn't seem to be any separation in the heart of God between uh, individual salvation and salvation on a broader level. That is the, the, the breaking of chains, the healing of oppression, reconciliation. <clears throat> 
And if we're to honor the Bible and to want to listen to what it says, that's going to mean I'm probably going to speak about social issues. I'm going to speak specifically about what the Bible says about the way things are and how the church should live in that moment. <clears throat> and when, when people have heard that, they've often given me very kind and very kind ways, feedback, getting political. Um, that's been brought up enough times. I want, to, I want to give a little bit of clarity on the usage of that term. Now, you don't have to come away from this agreeing with everything that I'm saying. I just want you to know where I'm coming from, the words that I'm using, so that you know why I'm going to be speaking about, and we're in the Gospel of Luke, there's going to be some social stuff that comes up, because Jesus cares, so that you know where I'm coming from, and so that we can have clarity of terms going forward, and what I mean, and what I don't mean. Uh, they say you should never discuss religion or politics at a meal, so I'm going to do both. <laughs> I need a donut to kind of complete the circle. No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm going to try to do it in a way that I think you'll, you'll find acceptable. <clears throat> politics, per se, is not a bad thing. It simply means, it simply refers to the process of organizing a community or society. To kind of borrow the terms that we've been using, it's stepping out of an individualized personal faith and saying, this would be great for a lot of people. We do this all the time. Uh, even on a church level, it's, it's as simple as me saying, gosh, the Bible is so good, I love it. I love listening to God's word. Moving from that to, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. How can we embed this in all of our home groups so that we all get this? It's moving beyond a privatized faith to one that actually changes the way that things are. That's all that that means, and it can be done well. It could be done terribly. Uh, but politics, per se, is not a bad thing. It's just the way that you move into a community or society with a sense of organization. And the Bible speaks to that all the time. The Bible speaks often on behalf of groups of disenfranchised people, not just individuals. It often calls uh, the people of God to make good changes in the community, to be a salt and a light in the city of Santa Barbara, not just to have a privatized faith, but to have a faith with fangs. I don't mean that in a way of like a faith that attacks people, but a faith that actually does something. The Bible often calls people to uh, speak truth to corrupt power and to call out injustices in society because God cares about those things, right? So I don't think when most people feel that cringe factor, not just with me, but anytime something smacks of like, going over the line, I, I don't think that people are cringing because of politics per se, but what I... I would like to term partisanship. And these are two different things. Partisanship is prejudice or bias in favor of a particular cause or ideology. This is where it gets tricky for the Christian. 
it's not that politics per se are bad, because we should all be living a faith that we are convicted by and believe in, and wanting other people to be a part of it too, in love. Where it gets tricky is where we begin to worship, to give it some Christian language here, a particular way of thinking so deeply that we can't think of anything else. And we have to remember that we're not just people on the planet, nor are we citizens of the planet. We are first of all citizens, according to Paul and Jesus, of a heavenly kingdom. We live here. We occupy here. We even obey the rules here. But our allegiance is first and foremost to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that does not mean we can't adopt a particular way of thinking, an ideology, a political platform, a philosophy, a worldview. In fact, we probably should. If that helps us have categories to process some of the larger things in life, that is a good thing. It's a tool. But the moment our ideologies begin to clash with the views of Jesus Christ himself, or even worse, when our uh, ideologies become so conflated with the faith that we don't even know where one begins and the other ends, we have not just erred, we've fallen into idolatry. We've begun worshiping something created by man instead of Jesus and actually carving one into the image of the other. We should always be trying to learn, do our best, but holding those things against the way of Jesus and adjusting accordingly. So politics per se, they're not bad. As long as we as followers of Jesus are learning to conform them to the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus champions. And Jesus was not apolitical. I don't know if you know this. It's a myth that he was just about spiritual, intangible things. Oh, no, Jesus had a set of politics. All you have to do is read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, to see what Jesus envisioned for a community of people. Uh, all you have to do is read anything that mentions the kingdom of God or the gospel. Those two words right there would have been loaded in the first century. They were very subversive because they were not very in line with the empire at large. In fact, most of the people that would, uh, would proclaim those things, Jesus and his disciples would get killed for it. And this is maybe a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around because we've never grown up in a monarchy. We don't have those categories. Kingdom of God, what is that? If you want to bring it down to uh, uh, bring it to our level or our categories, whenever you read the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, just insert into that the politics of Jesus, and you've got the right idea. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the politics of Jesus, the way of Jesus has come near to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for his name's sake. For the kingdom of God is theirs. For his way, his community and his society has come near to them. That's why it was so good to hear for the poor, for the down and out, for the outcast, for the downcast to hear this. God's vision of the world is going to start with me. Nobody's ever taken notice of me before. But God's bypassing all of the popular people, all of the wealthy people, 
all the people of affluence and means, and he's coming to me. He wants to make something out of me. He wants to start a movement with me. This is why it was so revolutionary. Jesus had a set of politics. They're just very difficult to reconcile with a me-first economic global superpower. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus when you're on the winning team in the world. It's hard. It's hard precisely because uh, when you're, uh, it's hard to adopt when your team is the one in power precisely because Jesus calls his team to give up power. He calls his team, first of all, to identify their power and identify their privilege and to loosen it in such a way that it empowers and props other people, empowers and dignifies them. This is a giving away of power kingdom, not a grabbing and a me first kingdom. That's why it's so difficult. It's only easy if you simply live like the surrounding culture and all of its inherent values and stamp all of those things with the Jesus label, which people do. But I believe that God is calling his people to something higher, something more radical and something more long-term. And we see this in, we just spoke about his mission, what God cares about, what he's doing. Here's how he's doing it, God's method. We see it in the sermon that Jesus preaches on Isaiah chapter 61. Look at this, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Okay, so now he's going to preach his sermon. It's long, so tuck yourself in, all right? The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Okay, first of all, I don't want, you to, I don't want to escape us the incredible nature of a Jesus sermon. He preached a sermon that was nine words long and had the place in stitches. Amazing. My intros are like 50 times that size. Jesus stand, uh, he, he sits down, delivers nine words, has the place in stitches. And here's why. You know, at first they were just enamored, like, oh my gosh, the things that he says, they're so gracious. I love how he speaks. But then they turned a corner really quick. Who's this guy? Didn't he just grow up around the block? In other words, they're offended by something that he's saying. At first they're astounded, impressed. Wow, this guy's incredible. What a great public speaker. But wait, what's, this, what's he saying? I don't like that. Isn't this guy the guy that grew up around the block with the poor carpenter? Listen to that guy. What's happening here is that God cares about the least of these. He cares about the hurting. He cares about the isolated. He cares about the people who have no champion. And because nobody was championing the championless, God said, I'm going to do it myself. So he sends his son. And there in the middle of a synagogue, one of the first things that Jesus preaches is, I'm here. Isaiah 61, that's me and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to create a community where this type of thing is valued and happens. Where people love proclaiming good news to people who really need it. Where liberty is gossiped about. 
to those who are captive. We're people who are blind. Literally, emotionally, metaphorically, spiritually, are able to see where the oppression of people is lifted and liberty is experienced and where the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed and sensed, at least in a small, tangible way, wetting our appetites for the day that it will truly and 100% be here. Jesus comes and he delivers a nine-word sermon saying basically that. And that he's going to create a community where this type of thing happens. And the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of that community. It's a picture of what the church is supposed to be. Now, he's saying this against the backdrop of Isaiah. So right, right behind what we just read is Isaiah 58, where Israel was supposed to be this. They were redeemed out of bondage, out of slavery from Egypt, And then they were called to be a blessing to the nations, but that's not what happened. What happens, and I'll I'll just summarize as much of the Old Testament as I can right now, but they, they got comfortable and secure. They got spiritually fat. They had stuff. They had power. They had privilege. And they hoarded it for themselves. They still went through all the motions, you know, they went to synagogue and did all of that stuff. Or back, at, you know, back in Isaiah to, to temple. But God calls him out on it. And he does it in Isaiah 53, this is, uh, 58. This is what leads up to what we just read. Let me just read part of this to you. God says, is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is that what I've called you to do? Is it just to bow down your head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under you? Is that what you will call a fast? Is that a day that's acceptable to the Lord? In other words, he's saying, hey, you're doing all the right religious exercises, fasting for them, to, maybe to put it into something we might be able to sink our teeth in. He might say, you know, to a contemporary evangelical American uh, Western church, like, is that really what I called you to do? Like, spend your life just showing up at church, like, you sing a few songs, you listen to a message, you go home, and nothing changes? Is that really all the capacity of the kingdom life that I've called you to is just to go through the motions for Israel fasting? And look at what he says. Is, he's basically asking, is that true fasting? Is it just to put sackcloth, to suffer, to be hungry, and then to go on about your business? Look at this. Is not a real fast? Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Isn't that what real spirituality is about? I free you and you spread that freedom? Is that not real gospel things? Is that not the real power of God? Is that God is not just adopting an extra list of religious practices, but to taste and see good news and liberty to captives and sight to the blind and oppression being lifted and the Lord's favor in our own lives and then bringing that all the way around? uh, Being a proponent of that and a champion of that and seeing that happen all around us? Is that not a true fast? Now the person who grows up in an atmosphere that says me first, you might be asking, well, that's cool for you, Israel, maybe for Jesus, because he's Jesus, and maybe for that 
preacher guy, maybe the monks on the hill. But me, I got problems, man. I got to watch out for my own self. You know what's so counterintuitive about the gospel, about the story of God, is that it is an upside-down picture of everything that the world system values. The world tells you, in order to get ahead, in order to be healthy, in order to be successful, you need to take, you need to control, you need to exert power, you need to flex your muscles, you need to push people out of the way. And once you do that, you'll get to a place and you'll be happy. And people get there and they're not happy. The Bible says, Jesus, our Lord and Messiah said, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it in mine. The counterintuitive economics of the kingdom is that the way that we win is by losing ourselves and finding a life in Christ. And it's no different for this. Look at the next section of Isaiah 58. A true fast, true worship is to, uh, is to step into God's passion for other people. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your health is dependent upon other people's health. Transformation in a community should come from a transformed heart. Look at what he says. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. What is God doing? He's trying to pull his people into the upside down nature of his kingdom. You want real health? Step into my way of doing things which is to start at the bottom and to give of yourself. This is what Jesus would do and exemplify when he not only went after people that nobody who needed something would go after, including some of us, but the way that he did it was not through mad cash or uh, violence or argument or control, or exerting power, but by losing all of those things. The person who sits upon the throne and deserves the worship of the nations stepped off of his throne and onto a traitor's cross, giving his life for people that didn't deserve it. No wonder people were scandalized. When did that ever work? Oh, it worked. Look around. The scandal of the cross is a scandal of grace. That a beautiful and holy and wonderful and righteous God would leave his place of privilege and step into the mess where people are in their real messy lives and say, I want to be with you. And I want to exchange your ashes for this beauty. And in the end, in a way that makes no sense to the cultural milieu of our day, by tapping into that life, that emptying of ourselves, we actually tap into a life worth living. Now, the last thing I'll say, spoke about his mission, He loves the unpopular, the broken, the destitute, the weary, the tired, the lonely. People that nobody else champions because they can't do anything for you. His method of doing it was by sending his son to break down those walls, but also to start a community, what we call the church, of people 
who would live that way. But then we see the reason why. And this is unbelievable. I wanted to call this God's mirth. Partly because I love that word mirth, and also I needed another M to complete my alliteration as a good pastor. Mirth is a funny old word. It describes amusement, especially expressed in laughter. Listen to this, 2 Samuel 22, verse 20. Why, why does God save? David said, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Through no merit or earning of my own, he just delighted. He doesn't go after people that are in the gutter because they have somehow lifted themselves up just enough for him to take notice. He doesn't go after people who are struggling. He doesn't go after people who are hurting and lost because they have somehow been spiritual enough to impress God. He goes after people who cannot lift a finger to help themselves simply because that's how God is. A God of love who overflows with delight for the down and out. Mirth. You just have to picture God up there, like, reaching out to you. Some of you maybe have this sense that he's like this angry employee, and you want to get near to him, you want to get your life right, and you're like, oh, God, I'm sorry, I want to come to you, and you have this picture of him like an angry boss, just ready to, like, you know, just do whatever angry bosses do, yell at you, fire you maybe, rehire you, fire you again. And yet what actually is the truth is, is what, the, what the reality is, mirth. He's waiting with open arms just on the verge of laughter like, yes, come on. I've been waiting my entire life for this, which is a long time. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 7. After Israel was rescued out of the depths of slavery, over time, as people often do, they got comfortable, secure, a little pride, uh, prideful. They started forgetting about people in need. They started turning inward and they started to think of themselves as pretty bad. Yeah, of course God chose us. We're God's instrument to the world. Why would he not? He says in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people or more powerful for you were the fewest of all people. No, but it was because the Lord loved you. God's mirth is another way of saying God's grace. He just loves reaching out to people that can't reach anywhere out of no merit of their own, simply because God is a champion of the broken. Are any of you broken today? You're in the right place. And as Israel got privileged enough and a little full of themselves and a little comfortable, they started to lose sight of the grace of God. They started to look more to their own self-sufficiency. They started to forget people that were in the dumps like they were in the dumps. And they started looking inwardly, getting more self-protective, more self-sufficient, more, uh, uh, more in a spirit of self-preservation than of self-giving love. And thousands of years later, they're still doing it. And right here on the scene, Jesus calls them out. And this is at that point in the sermon where they're flipping out. They were like astounded, like, oh, he's such a good public speaker. And now they're like, oh, what is he saying? I don't like this. Well, he's, 
He's bringing them back to the passion of God and they don't like it. And he responds to them, and this is the last passage here. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In other words, he's, he's, he's pointing out their cynicism. He's pointing out their, uh, their suspicion. They don't believe in him. They don't want to believe in him. Whether either because the, the, the scandal of grace is just too good to accept and they're leaning more on their own self-sufficiency and they don't want that or they simply don't want to share. And this is what I think Jesus starts to poke at in the remaining verses. He said, truly, I, uh, he says in verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them None of those Israelites, but only to Jerapeth in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Because <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you, you see what's happening here? Jesus is reminding them where they came from and how desperately in need of grace that they are. And a grace that is understood and received is a grace that spills out into other circles within society and in our community and other people and neighborhoods and people that we know and do life with. It's a sharing faith. It's a faith that says, I want what I'm experiencing here to happen everywhere. And somewhere along the line, God's people lost sight. And here on this scene, Jesus is actually being a little, you know, he's throwing an elbow right now. He's saying, hey, remember Elijah and Elisha? What you're doing to me right now, this happened before. You guys, you know, centuries ago, uh, didn't want to receive from God either, and you closed your windows to people in need, you closed your hearts to God, and so God left the building. And who did he go to? What are the names he brought up? Zarephath in the land, uh, land of Sidon, that's uh, modern-day Lebanon. Uh, Naaman, the Syrian. Syria is modern-day Syria. He went outside the building. He went outside the parameters of religious safety. He said, if you don't want the scandal of grace, I'm going to bring it to people that are broken enough to receive it. And he takes the feast of God's kingdom to the hungry. There are, there's, there's something both comforting and jarring about this to me personally. One is that I might one day get so comfortable that I start becoming, uh, I start falling to self-preservation, I start getting spiritually fat, I start filling my mind with a bunch of good stuff, going through motions with my church, and forgetting that a gospel that is good news, that a, that a gospel that is not good news to people around me, the down and out, the poor, the lost, the oppressed, is not a good news at all. But the comforting thing is, 
It's precisely good news because it comes to people just like me and just like you. People from all walks of life who have been abandoned, isolated, and passed by by a world lusting after success and power. And perhaps some of you are still trying to chase after some of those, those values, success and power. And God is here saying, that is not the That is not true life. But I'll show you the way if you'll just turn this way and give everything to me. It seems like it might be possible, even as a believer, as a Christian, to drift so far away from God's heart that you don't even realize he's left the room. And I don't ever want to get to that point. And I have. And it would seem that the way to counter that is to continue to go back to the things that God did that captivated our heart in the beginning. The simple, scandalous nature of grace. Some of you might think that you are worthless. That you are not someone that God has particularly any care or desire to show. Uh, You may already have experienced that the world has passed you by. You might feel lonely, isolated, with nothing to offer, you feel. And you're in this room, now turning your attention towards God, perhaps thinking of the same thing. God has nothing to gain from me, doesn't want anything from me. I don't even know why I'm here. But you're in the right place because you are the perfect person that God loves to throw a party for. Remember the prodigal son story? The guy who screwed everything up, lost all of his friends, lost all of his success, all of his money, angered his entire family, was the scum of the earth and the shame of society, and his father ran out to meet him. Said, put put the family ring on his finger, put my favorite jacket on him, and come on, let's have a barbecue, this is gonna be wild. I'm thinking of like old-fashioned Filipino barbecue, just like right outside, just right there in the ground, pineapples all over there. I mean, he's like, he's freaking out. He's like, my, my son has come home. Let's celebrate. So to anybody in this room who feels like you are worthless, like you are invisible, like you are unseen, you are seen by the only person that matters and wants you to come home. Some of you are running. I want you to stop running today. I want you to stop running wherever you've been running and start to change direction and run into the arms of Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross, went through the shame in order that you might be raised to life with him. And that there, my friends, is the politics of Jesus, the way of Jesus. God has come near to people in Christ apart from anything that they have done to deserve it. That is the good news. The only thing that's left for people like us. So are we broken enough to receive it? To shed our layers of self-preservation and pride in order to kneel down before the king of glory and the savior of the world and say, I need you more than anything. And when he lifts us up and sets our feet upon a rock, will we obey his word to be sent out 
and to be a minister of that type of healing and reconciliation in our own communities. To tap into that life is to tap into the heart of God and there is no greater way to live. But it involves us moving past the, the morass of lies that the culture tells us about what true success and winning is in order to take up the cross of Jesus and to follow after him. He's our hero, he's our Lord, he's our king, and nobody knows how to do this thing called life better than him. And right now he invites you, come and follow me. You won't regret it. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and ask uh, that as we sing together, songs responding from our hearts to you in repentance, coming back to you after perhaps we've been running, I pray what you have so often exemplified in Scripture would be true for us today. I pray that each of us would have a real tangible sense of God running to meet us. God, I pray that you would heal our hearts, that you would change what's going on inside of us, that you would pick us up, remove us from that which entangles us, restore and redeem what the enemy has broken. But God, I pray that it would not stop there. I pray that you would also connect each and every one of us to this grand mission that you have to change the world one life at a time. I pray that you would expand our vision, that you would give us passion for the things of God, and that we would be able to truly and authentically and deeply say, Jesus will follow you anywhere. God, enlarge our faith today. Heal us where we're hurting. Strengthen us where we're afraid. And light a fire inside of our collective hearts and souls that will actually have a tangible impact on the world around us. That people might know God is real and he loves them. In Jesus' name, amen.